Hi, this is Heidi, and this is Parent Town, a podcast where we explore stories of parenting in hopes that they can connect us and maybe make the world a little easier to understand. Welcome to Parent Town, everyone. We're doing a special COVID edition. I have a complete stranger in front of me right now who I will be interviewing about what he does and who he is, and a lot of questions actually that I've had from uh, the community, not only friends, but also people reaching out, knowing what uh, Josh does, and having some questions. And so I thought, hey, you know what would be a good idea? If we just asked him questions, and then he could answer. So, hi Josh, who are you? Hi Heidi. Well, I'm your husband. I'm also a critical care physician here in the Twin Cities area. Mm-hmm. I was a late bloomer, so I've been in practice for four years now with fellowship for that. I'm also a dad of the same kids you know. Mm-hmm. I do know them. <laughs> <laughs> so I think... Uh, Get to start over if you want. No, this is fine. Just We're doing this. All right. Um I collected some questions from people and also from myself, and the best questions are actually from our 15-year-old. So in using this opportunity to talk about COVID and especially what you do in your work, what have the past couple of weeks looked like for you and your colleagues at the hospital? Uh, It's been a big change, Um, not in the same way that it's changed for what are being called the hot spots in in the United States, certainly it looks nothing like it does in New York right now. Um, But we've been uh, furiously preparing for the possibility that it could turn into something like that, uh, certainly on a relative scale. And so we went from, let's see here, it is the beginning of April, so probably in early March we were still operating under business as usual. And um, we have a 74 bed, or uh, we have separate ICUs, but we have a total of 74 beds. And up until the beginning of March, we were seeing anywhere from 50 to 60 patients a day with all sorts of the things that we normally see. Um, We're a very busy cardiac center, and so seeing a lot of patients after their heart surgeries and those kinds of things. And then uh, as soon as there was recognition that um, COVID-19 was in the United States and was not going away, as someone at the highest level of government suggested it might, that changed suddenly. Uh, our hospital stopped doing elective procedures, uh, including heart procedures. Uh, any non-emergent procedure stopped. And so we actually became much less busy clinically, um, but then focused a lot of energy into trying to get ready for um, an influx of patients that really require being cared for in a much different way than we're used to. Uh, We're fortunate in the United States that we, up until now, hadn't seen a lot of highly contagious pathogens like some other places have seen. We 
We're fortunate uh, to really miss, especially locally here in Minnesota, we missed the SARS outbreak and then the MERS outbreak Mm -hmm. that occurred earlier. And so uh, that's really what we've been doing is getting ready to take care of And we are now taking care of patients that have a highly communicable infectious disease. So that means changing how our ICUs are physically structured. We've taken one of our ICUs and it is now almost entirely a negative airflow space, meaning the air in that space is pumped out through filters, of course. Up until now, our hospital, I can't remember the exact number, but I think we, you know, we had maybe... 10 negative airflow rooms in the entire hospital. Mm-hmm. Uh, we now have probably 50. Okay. And that's all because of how this disease is transmitted. You just checked your phone. What I was looking what are at numbers today. The statistics from the state today and I think an important thing to know is talked about frequently but to emphasize that our testing infrastructure is abysmal. And that's not an overstatement. In something like this, uh, you would like to be able to test a high number of people, especially people who have mild symptoms or perhaps even no symptoms, but are in communities where you know that something like this is being transmitted so that you can isolate the people that have it and also track the people that have it and track its spread. Do you feel like that's the whole idea of testing? Do you feel like, well, I know you hope it changes, but do you feel like it's going to, like in the next month? I think it will. Uh, it It is changing and, and will change over time. But the, the disappointing thing is it's not changing because of anything the federal government's done. Mm-hmm. And so uh, getting sidetracked from your question, the, the countries that are having the best success in controlling this are the countries that are doing the best job of testing and then uh, isolating. So uh, Germany is one. Yeah, I read about Germany this um, morning. South Korea. I haven't looked at their numbers lately, but at, at least initially um, Hong Kong was doing remarkably well for how close they are to Wuhan uh, where this started. To get back to your question, what I was looking at were the Minnesota Department of Health statistics, and anyone can look at these. Uh, They're published every day. There's a situation update for coronavirus disease 2019. That's what COVID-19 stands for. And I was uh, coming into today, I was feeling more optimistic because our uh, number of new cases had remained pretty flat for several days. And then actually the the total number of new cases each day seemed to be declining. But then, of course, the last two days it's jumped. And that may be a reflection of doing more tests, uh-huh. um, but it may be also a reflection of more people getting ill. So, you know, Minnesota's now up to, you know, these are just published once a day. So it's certainly different now than it was when this was published. But, um, you know, we're up over 900 cases. Uh-huh. Um, fortunately, Nearly half of those are considered not to need isolation anymore. So again, that I think points to our curve rising slowly mm-hmm. rather than quickly. And I think we now have a total of 48 patients in ICUs around the state. Uh, and those are primarily here in the Twin Cities, okay. not in my institution by itself. What do you predict is going to happen in the next month? 
That's really hard to say. I like to think that uh, both because of how Minnesotans live in general and also because um, not that we were way ahead of the curve, but I think we were on the front end of the curve for social distancing or whatever euphemism you want to use, uh, that's hopefully slowed the spread. But I, I don't really know. It's really hard to tell, but it seems like we are going to continue on kind of a slow burn, which is really my hope. Uh, this is not going to go away for quite a while. In in fairness to the people that you know have to make these larger policy decisions, um, it's hard to know when this is going to end, but I think these predictions that, you know, I know that's coming, gone, but like the Easter prediction, I think, was wildly unreasonable. Yeah. I think any prediction that we're going to have any sense of normalcy before the end of the summer is probably, uh, that may even be optimistic. I mean, whether or not we have to continue to live the way we are living right now it remains to be seen, but... There will be no return to quote-unquote normal. Mm -hmm. We're going to live with SARS-CoV-2, which is the name of the virus. Um, we'll be living with that forever. The hope is eventually we'll have a vaccine, and so that will help attenuate this. Plus, it has to be said that the vast majority of people that get this do okay. Mm -hmm. Currently, the thinking is 80% of people who contract the illness will have a mild illness that they can either have no symptoms or mild symptoms, they recover at home, they do fine. Mm -hmm. uh, the problem is, is the other 20% get sick enough that they need to be in the hospital and 5% of the total end up in the ICU. And because of the rapidity of spread, that's how health systems get overwhelmed. Right. And so, you know, this is not going to go away. Mm -hmm. Certainly, as we build up immunity um, within the herd, the population, the herd, that will help. It is still unclear how long people remain immune. We won't know that for mm -hmm. a while. I had a um, somebody asked me a question in regards to what does having COVID look like when you are a patient, because they were talking about getting mixed messages or you could have this, but you might not have this, but all of a sudden we found COVID in this person and they had no signs of it. So, and maybe that's an impossible question. Well, it's not impossible. There's, there are common themes. So it falls under the category of uh, influenza-like illness. And so the most typical symptoms are fever, a dry cough, uh, body aches, or mm -hmm. otherwise known as myalgias. People can have sore throats, uh, headache, and it's not unusual but not typical is diarrhea. Mm -hmm. um, we've certainly had patients admitted to our hospital who their presenting complaint was abdominal discomfort and diarrhea. Mm -hmm. um, they may or may not have had a cough several days prior to presenting that went away, but then when getting worked up for their presentation, they're found to have findings in their lung imaging that is uh, typical of COVID-19. And so they get tested and they're positive. And they're positive. Okay. The big thing for everyone to remember is that the latest figure I've read, and again, 
we won't really know these numbers until we're kind of on a down slope of this thing is up to 25% of people who contract COVID or SARS-CoV-2 do not have symptoms. Hmm. And yet they are infectious. They're shedding virus and passing it to other people. And that's why this social distancing, this physical isolation that we're undergoing right now is so important, mm-hmm. um, especially until we can have widespread testing. Mm-hmm. Just to go back to the flu, influenza. And again, when people say, I had the flu, Influenza is an upper respiratory disease, typically presents with fever, cough, maybe shortness of breath, just like this COVID-19. Seasonal influenza does not typically present with gastrointestinal symptoms, Mm -hmm. so just to be clear. But that we have widespread testing for. And so when, you know, in the past you would have uh, high fever, aches all over wintertime, Mm -hmm. You could easily go get your nose swabbed for the flu, and either you had it or you didn't. Right. And that's that's how we were able to have robust information about how the flu behaves. We track it really well. We understand it really well. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's easier to deal with. This is brand new. It's harder to deal with. So right now, the numbers would indicate up to 25% a quarter of people who get this virus do not have symptoms but even though you don't have symptoms, you're still infectious. Right. And that's why staying away from people that you don't live with and see every day is really important. This is a question from your 15-year-old. hmm Are you trying to stay positive throughout this ordeal? If so, what are you doing to do so? And are you worried about the mental health of frontliners? Um, I am staying mostly positive. There was a good essay in the New York Times several weeks ago, and to paraphrase the headline, you know, it was basically, I know you're nervous, your doctor's nervous too. Mm. That wasn't the exact headline, so if you search that, you may not find it. But the point is, those of us in healthcare, doctors, advanced practitioners like NPs, PAs, nurses, we're all nervous. Um and you just look at what's happening in New York mm-hmm. and what's happening in Italy and continues to happen in Spain. I really don't want that to happen here. Mm-hmm. On the flip side, um, yeah, I'm staying positive because what's the alternative? True. And we have to live with you. And you have to live with me. <laughs> <laughs> Stay and, positive. And... You have seen me when I'm not positive, and You're I trend always, towards pessimism. Always positive. I'm always positive. I'm always positive things are going to turn out bad. So what am I doing to stay positive? Well, I mean, part of it is, so there's a little bit of irony here. So as somebody who went into critical care, in some ways, I this is what I am interested in and signed up for, is take care of people who get really sick. And it's something new to learn about. And we're learning about the way we take care of sick people. So in a professional level, there is some, you know, there's some distraction there. Um, I'm also exercising regularly, either inside or out, all the while practicing uh, staying away from people and crossing the street when I see them coming or what have you. Um, I, I, 
I see people out riding their bikes and packs. I know they don't all live together, and it's uh, really irritating because those people are just spraying droplets all over themselves <laughs> and their friends. Yeah. And so I don't recommend that. I recommend not doing that. Right. Um, I don't run with friends. I, it, it really is important to stay away from people who you don't know what they're doing all the time. Right. I'm going to keep stressing that. Yeah, no, that's a good, and I think you do, just that sentence. It's like, you don't know what people are doing all the time. No. So unless you're actually living in the same house with them and you are forced to see what they're doing all the time because nobody's leaving, then don't. Right. What are some ways that people can help the medical community as far as making masks and what can people do in the future? Uh, well, that remains to be seen. Right. Um, I think... Yeah, you know, taking care of oneself is really important. Um, I speak with some personal experience with this, um, but if you can change the way you live with certain things, do that. So, like, quit smoking. Some of the people who smoke and get this deal are the people who are really getting hit hard. Mm -hmm. Just take care of yourself. And then... Again, in this community, we've been very lucky in that we, at least to this point, have the resources we need. But that, again, is part of doing the deal and following the rules is if you can keep yourself well and out of the healthcare system, you're going to help the people who really need it and the people that are working in the healthcare system. Making masks is uh, a good thing, especially now that the CDC has finally come around to wanting everyone to wear masks all the time. Mm -hmm. To clarify, the cloth masks that people make are not really intended to protect the people that wear them. They're intended to protect the people around them. Unless it's one of these um, higher-tech N95 masks, the N95s are designed to protect the wearer. The mm -hmm. other masks are really designed to protect uh, people around the wearer. So like when a surgeon is wearing a surgical mask in the operating room, mm -hmm. they're wearing it so that they don't contaminate the surgical field they're working in, not necessarily to protect them from right. the operation they're doing. Now, it is some protection... Clearly, because, you know, if something gets sprayed towards your face and mm -hmm. you're wearing a mask, that's going to stop most of it from hitting mm -hmm. you. They're just not designed to be... A hundred percent. Like, they're not like a right. shield against... I was thinking about this, though, as I was just talking to a friend on the phone about masks. Yeah. And she had a really good point. She said, the mask for me isn't necessarily... I understand, like, it's not going to protect me. But what I do so subconsciously throughout the day, and I never realized how much I do it, and I do it so much as Heidi, is touch my face. Yes. I touch my face all the time. Mm -hmm. And so I thought maybe wearing a, a mask is also a reminder that, oh, I'm wearing a mask. Like, don't... Touch your mouth, Heidi. So I don't know. She. It was just like an interesting point that she brought up. So I was like, "Wow, that's well, true. I do that subconsciously all the time." That's true. It 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 will um, at least interrupt that chain of transmission initially, and that's actually a good point to reinforce. Wash your hands a lot. Mm -hmm. It's so important. Yeah, I have one last question for you. Mm -hmm. This is a big one. Again, this is your fifteen-year-olds. How do you think the medical world will change after this pandemic, both in policies and in practice? 
Maybe how do you think, but how do you hope? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I think think and hope are two different things. Yeah, maybe just what you hope. And you can I, wear your doctor hat and you can wear your dad hat and your um, human being hat. I hope we end up with true universal coverage. I'm not planting a flag on the single-payer system. That is one option. There are other examples of different ways to do it, but we need to end up with a, a very a functional universal coverage. My hope is that as we are not doing a lot of elective things, we as a society realize we don't need a lot of elective things. There's a lot of discussion out there, especially about universal health care, that if we become like Canada, then I'm going to have to wait to get my X, Y, or Z for a month or three months or something like that. That may be, but I think we may find that most of us don't need a lot of the things that we think we do. That's not to say I don't, you know, I don't live with a bad hip and the pain of that, and I'm not trying to minimize that. I think we're going to see a changing threshold for what becomes an essential health service mm. and what isn't. Mm-hmm. I hope hospitals start to function a little bit differently, too. I think we've been naive up to this point, thinking that these kinds of things aren't going to happen to us. As I mentioned before, we've been very lucky um, but this just goes to show that it will continue. Uh, I mean, this is, you know, this is the third kind of novel coronavirus in the last almost 20 years with uh, first SARS, then MERS. Now we have this one. New things will keep emerging. The world is too connected for them to stay away. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not going to have travel bans forever. And so we need to be better prepared at a, at a, just a fundamental level. And more globally, we really need a public health system in this country. We don't really have one. Um, every state has their own Department of Health. There is some federal oversight, but um, kind of the tension between federal mandates and, and state sovereign powers, if you want to call it that, or states' rights, whatever. Mm -hmm. We don't have a great functioning public health system. Mm -hmm. We really need that. And I know there have been people in Congress agitating for that, and they have not been listened to uh, until now. My hope is is they will. Mm -hmm. Hopefully some lessons will be learned. Yeah, I really hope so. And, And I'm trying to figure out what I need to learn, too. I mean, I haven't focused on a lot of large policy issues in my life, and maybe I'll look at some in more depth. But mm-hmm. Is there anything that I haven't brought up that you feel like you need to say? Uh, well, <clears throat> I don't want to get uh, too too dire about all this, but uh, there is you know, something that I have, have been involved in trying to get communities of people to at least talk about limits of care or end-of-life care or um, you know, what's known as the health care directive. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to stress that right now there is no such thing as a universal DNR for COVID-19 patients. And I don't know that there ever will be. I think you know there's a lot of talk about, and there needs to be talk about 
uh, resource allocation in pandemics because, you know, New York is a prime example. They're hitting the limits of what they can do for each individual. And, and it could happen here too, but it hasn't happened yet. And there is no such thing right now, but it is a discussion that's being had. Mm-hmm. But I think it's important even to get, once we get through this, for, for people to just think about these kinds of things, because it changes through your lifetime what you're willing to go through and what you should be willing to go through, mm-hmm. because that's another thing that I think we're going to figure out after this is how much we do to and for people that in the end doesn't make a difference. Maybe we should do like a whole new podcast just on that because that's a discussion that I know you and I have had in depth about. Oh yeah. That's a, I mean, that's a, that's a heavy layered topic and it's, it's a thing that people will approach very differently from individual to individual. And I'm not advocating for a one-size-fits-all answer or approach. And the reason I bring it up is to at least have those conversations with the people that you love and that love you and that might need to make decisions for you if you can't make a decision Mm -hmm. for yourself. So when you asked me earlier, what does a COVID-19 patient look like? Mm -hmm. Well, if you're you know, we talked about the people that might be okay at home. But if you end up in my ICU, you are almost guaranteed to be on a ventilator, mm-hmm. on mechanical ventilation. And if you are, then you cannot speak. Mm-hmm. And if you have COVID-19 and you're on a ventilator, then you're probably in pretty tough shape. And so you're going to be heavily sedated. I, I occasionally take care of people on a ventilator who are awake enough and with it enough that can write things down. That's really rare. You see yeah. it on TV. It's really rare. And so if you're on a ventilator, you can't talk. You can't communicate. No you're not going to be pointing at a whiteboard. You're not going to be typing on a computer. Um, That's such a good reminder, though. I don't think a lot of people think about that. If you're, if you're critically ill on life support, it is unlikely you are communicating with anyone. So take some time and do that now. So take some time and talk to the people that really care about you so that they're not stuck having to make very tough decisions without really knowing what you would want them to do. Mm-hmm. Having those conversations doesn't mean that there aren't going to be hard decisions or confusion or uncertainty. Right. It just makes it that much easier to at least bring you into the conversation mm-hmm. to lessen the chance that you're going to end up somewhere you would never want to be. Yeah. Thanks, Josh. You're welcome, Heidi. I hope that helps. <laughs> I think it does. Um, I just appreciate you doing this. And I know other people do as well. Thank you for listening. Please check out our website at www.parent-town.com. Like us and share the podcast on our Facebook site. We really, really appreciate that. You can listen to us where you listen to all your podcasts under Parent Town Podcast. If you have an idea for a show, we would love to hear from you, so don't be shy. As always, thank you to my co-producer, Greg, who is also sound expert extraordinaire, and to Park States for letting us use their amazing music. Again, thank you for listening. I'm Heidi, and this is Parent Town. <laughs>